I'm Liz Wessel, co-founder and CEO of Way Up. You're listening to our podcast, On the Way Up, where I talk to industry leaders and innovators about how they got started. No matter what your career path, you had to start somewhere. From side hustles to first jobs, we're talking all about making the first career move and what it's like on the way up. Over 40% of Gen Z say that they want to one day start their own company and be entrepreneurs, but they often don't know if they want to do it immediately after college or if they want to work for a few years first. So I decided to invite my dear friend Jesse to talk about his path and how he made the leap immediately after graduating to start his own company. Jesse Kaplan, welcome. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Um, so something a lot of our listeners slash viewers don't necessarily know before we even get started is that you're one of my closest friends. So we're, we're planning to get deep and personal in this. So <laughs> thanks in advance for agreeing to do this oh, uh, and saying some embarrassing it. things, I promise. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Give me your 60 second kind of life rundown. Oh, wow. Great. Okay. Uh, my name is Jesse Kaplan. I'm 27 years old. Uh, grew up right outside Boston in Newton, Massachusetts. Uh, went to high school and college there, and then finally moved to New York right after graduating. Always very interested in entrepreneurship and doing things on my own. I guess I had authority problems from day one. Uh, I spent a lot of my time in college actually opening up a coffee shop that operates every single night now. It serves food and drinks and also serves as a student art performance space, a rotating gallery, things like that, uh, and got really interested in operations specifically there. Upon moving to New York, knew I wanted to do something on my own and something that was operationally intensive, but ideally more scalable than a coffee shop. So I landed in the logistics world, launching a package delivery service called Parcel. Uh, Flash forward about five and a half years, we ended up being acquired by Walmart, where uh, I integrated and still served as CEO of Parcel for a little over a year, uh, and then stepped down back in November, and since then have been traveling and catching up on many years of sleep deprivation, and I'm probably over 60 seconds now. Uh, But yeah, that's me in a fragmented nutshell. The elevator has already opened and closed, (laughs) but I stayed in it because it was fascinating. Oh, I'm honored. Thank Um, you, Liz. So let's go back to young Jesse. What were you like? Like, What did you want to be when you grew up? Sure. I did a lot of theater growing up and was always interested in entertainment a little bit, but wasn't sure if that was the industry that I would land in. Uh, always loved building things, initially kind of more physical with my hands. I did a lot of connects, sort of like Legos. It's like big construction projects, and I would spend days on end growing up just building these massive towers out of connects that were often taller than I was, and just loved being able to put something together and see how something was formed. I used to disassemble phones and computers throughout our house growing up, sometimes reassembling them, other times just looking at the pieces and apologizing to my parents. <laughs> but I was always very interested in seeing how things were made. Uh, and as a result, knew I wanted to do something creative and something entrepreneurial. My family's very entrepreneurial, almost we're no gonna one's get ever there. worked for anyone. Yeah. <laughs> so it was always maybe in my blood or at least less stigmatized than it probably is for most people growing up. Sophomore year. What You started the coffee shop junior year or sophomore year? Um, we had what we called a spring preview, sophomore spring, but the <laughs> grand opening was my junior fall. Okay. And um, how did you end up deciding to start a coffee shop? Like what moment were you thinking, there needs to be another coffee shop in Boston right. and I need it to I need it to be mine. So once I got to Harvard, I wanted to dive into as many things as possible. Unlike a lot of Harvard students, I actually had a pretty limited extracurricular 
experience in high school really focusing on performing arts both on stage and backstage. So once I got to Harvard, I wanted to try a little bit of everything. So I did hip hop dance, I did Indian dance, I joined student government, I tutored for the economics department, I ran a How's SAT your head bob for program. Indian dancing? Sorry. It's very good. I ended up choreographing Indian dance my senior year, wow. in fact. Yeah. Uh, so I basically uh, threw myself into all sorts of things. I worked for the admissions office, doing tours and info sessions, etc. And I found myself sophomore fall uh, involved in 27 extracurriculars, which is really wild. That's my lucky number, though. So. Is it really? Yeah, so it's a good amount. That's great. No, and I enjoyed something about all of them. You know, I met amazing people. I got to experience all sorts of campus life, etc., but didn't feel a lot of ownership over any one of them and was really longing to work on something where I felt that I could have a larger impact and ideally build something that would last beyond my time at Harvard. So I ended up uh, identifying this need on campus. There isn't a student center at Harvard, or at least there wasn't when I attended. So late at night, people were often either working from their dorm rooms or from dining halls, and there was no kind of combined option, something that was both social and comfortable. And of course, you know, like any overworked undergrad, there was, uh, everyone was always craving caffeine and baked goods late at night, and there's really nowhere on campus to get that. So the idea came to me and my roommate at the time. We identified this space in our residential complex that seemed prime for some sort of commercial establishment that could operate at night and serve as both a caffeine center and a social space and a homework spot. And we started developing the idea from there, ended up putting together a really preliminary budget and brought that to our housemaster, the person basically in charge of running our residential complex, and presented this idea as a way to really better student life and also you know, foster an element of entrepreneurship on campus, give people a chance to work on a small business with a level of control and involvement that there really wasn't an opportunity for elsewhere. Uh, luckily, he was a Harvard Business School professor who had a very entrepreneurial background himself. He loved the idea and gave mm. us the go-ahead to test it out for just four days that spring. So this is my sophomore spring. We closed very preliminary relationships with different vendors and bakeries in the area, got a few acapella groups to sign on to performing there, borrowed furniture, bar- rented barista equipment, etc. It was kind of a a beta or even an alpha version of a coffee shop and things just went so extraordinarily well each night we sold out of everything and would double our order for the next night sell out again we got a lot of amazing local press coverage for it and at the end of that preview got the official go-ahead and funding from harvard uh, about seventy thousand dollars to fully renovate the space and launch the following fall what i love about what you just said is i feel like as an entrepreneur i'm constantly emailed by students i've never met saying i want to start my own business but i don't know where to start and i feel like you just showed you just start you just go and figure <laughs> it out like i love how you you didn't have to find the right vendor after you know talking to a hundred different ones and going through too many processes you just said let's just do it and try it out i love that i tend to be extremely obsessive and often indecisive so i think something that starting businesses has enabled me to learn is that at a certain point your time is such a scarce resource uh, and recognizing that sometimes making a quicker decision provided that it's somewhat informed is better than making the best decision Uh, and yeah it was definitely thrown together uh, every single thing in the 11th hour and ended up being you know something that I don't know if I would say I was extraordinarily proud of at the time but something that I ended up being really proud of and realized was the 
kind of birth of what Cabot Cafe has since become, and it continues operating every night now. I love it. Yeah. Is, is there a picture of you in a gold frame there? <laughs> there should be. There should be, right? There should be a life-size cutout of <laughs> yes! me. Managers, take note. Uh, <laughs> no, but I did go back. It celebrated its seventh birthday this year, right, uh, September 25th. That. Yes, I went back to campus, gave a little talk on entrepreneurship. Uh, and it's amazing. You know, of course, I love that there is still, you know, caffeine intake that I helped become part of, et cetera. <laughs> um, but also speaking to the managers who now run it and the baristas there have said what a special and rare opportunity it is to really be so, you know, involved in a small business, yeah. have so much control over something entrepreneurial like that, especially in an environment like Harvard, where, you know, I think entrepreneurship isn't everyone's yeah. first priority. Okay. So at what point, I know you, you're a sibling is extremely entrepreneurial and started her own business that um, is or co-founded her own business that's used by many of our users at way up her campus. Talk a little bit about your sister and and did that inspire you to take the leap when you were graduating, which we'll fast forward to in a little bit. My sister was always really interested in the media world and journalism. So her internships in college were at Hearst and Condé Nast in New York. And she always had, from my recollection, you know, dreamt of going into that world. She ended up running or becoming the editor-in-chief of an on-campus magazine at Harvard for college women, or for Harvard women specifically, called Freeze. Uh, and she and the two other students who were running that magazine recognized that there was potential to scale that beyond just Harvard's campus to supplement you know, national college-focused content with more individualized campus-specific content and began developing this idea of you know, bringing Freeze magazine first online and second to a broader audience, not just of Harvard students, but of college women across the country and eventually across the world. So they sort of stumbled into this entrepreneurial endeavor, whereas uh, you know, her interest wasn't always first and foremost in business, but ended up you know, landing her in an entrepreneurial path where she now is the you know, CEO, co-founder, and editor-in-chief of her campus. So did you see that and say, like, wow, she's working insane hours, is totally underpaid, I want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds so appealing, right? No, uh, I think there was definitely... Uh, I'm not sure if I was so much envious of that path as I was aware of it and saw it as something that felt attainable. I think that for people who are entrepreneurial but don't have someone in their close family or friend group who has pursued something, you know, so quickly or so independently, it feels much less realistic than it felt for me. And just seeing my family run their own businesses uh, gave me a comfort level with it that definitely inspired me and helped me to pursue that. That said, I wasn't 100% sure at all that I would start a company right out of college, mm. though I thought I'd eventually land there. So I had you know, an internship at a venture capital firm after my sophomore year to learn a little bit about you know, entrepreneurship and startups, but also the finance side of things. And after my junior year, interned at a tech startup here in New York City, uh, which sparked my love of New York you know, more than anything. And how did you even get the internship? I interned, or rather, I spent a long time meeting with different early stage startups during my junior year. Cold emailing them? A lot of cold emails and then a lot of getting introduced through the venture capital firm that I'd worked at the previous summer and friends of mine who were already in the startup world in New cool. York. I felt even if a company wasn't hiring, uh, it was still you know a company worth meeting with if it seemed like there could be potential interest there. And I never believe that you know the only companies that are looking for help or interns are those that have listings on their website. I encourage all my friends, if there's a company that's interesting, email the founder. Founders yeah. are extremely receptive. I think both you and I are 
particularly obsessed with sending cold emails and also often respond to cold emails. Uh, I think that people are much more inclined to respond than you would assume and are much more accessible, yeah. especially founders who care so much about their business and are so you know, personally and professionally flattered and validated by someone taking an interest in their business. So I found it pretty easy to meet with so many different companies and ended up narrowing down my options to a few and chose OnSwipe due to you know, the team primarily and also the stage that it was at. And it just seemed like a really fun and interesting place to work and to, you know, first step foot into the New York startup scene. Okay, so senior year, what was the day that you decided I'm not going to take any job offers or even submit that one? You know, everyone from what Harvard, I would imagine, goes to the banks and the consulting firms. Right. So what was the day <laughs> that you decided I'm doing parcel. Right. You might not know this story. So I, my senior year, my senior spring, I put all of my classes on Wednesdays uh, very deliberately. So I had a six-day weekend, Thursday to Tuesday, and I would spend... That is smart. Very smart. Uh, and I would spend almost every single one in New York City just meeting with as many people as possible. I would line up meetings all day with uh, investors, with friends who worked at companies, with founders, uh, with pretty much anyone I could find that seemed potentially interesting, trying to figure out really what I wanted to do out of graduation. Uh, I ended up meeting with a handful of companies that were in their earliest stages looking for you know, some of their first employees and thought that could be a really good middle ground in terms of seeing what it's like to be at a super early stage company without assuming the full you know, financial or reputational and professional risk of starting something myself. Yeah. Uh, and I ended up working part-time for one of them, which is also in an incubator program, and uh, it was just two founders full-time, and I was supporting them on business development, marketing, operations, a little bit of everything. And I ended up deciding to join full-time after graduating. So for most of the end of my senior spring, I was you know, almost working there full-time, developing pitch decks and helping them with business model analytics, et cetera. Uh, and ultimately, it ended up being a, a really challenging experience. I felt that uh, it was as unstructured as though I was running my own thing um, and the workload was somewhat on par as well, but not having ultimate ownership, you know, either financial or from an executive decision-making uh, standpoint ended up being really challenging to kind of reconcile against how much effort I felt I was putting into it. So upon graduating, like the, actually after I was already graduated, I emailed the founders letting them know that I wasn't totally sure long term that this was going to be the right fit, but that I you know, would love to continue supporting them through the remainder of this incubator program through you know, demo days or the day when they would pitch different investors. And that from that point onward, we could have a more open conversation about uh, you know, what long term fit may or may not make sense. And they responded that if it wasn't going to be a long term fit, they didn't think it would be a fit at all. And uh, suddenly I didn't have a job, but did have an apartment that I'd already rented and <laughs> a plan to move to the city. And Is that startup still around, by the way? It's not. Okay. Uh, it was acquired by another oh. company. Okay, good for them. Yeah. So, you, so you're in New York City. That's right. So I got here. I had this apartment in this, you know, this amazing uh, neighborhood, this amazing city. I was really excited about it. And I actually did view it as this rare moment of freedom rather than this panic-inducing moment of unemployment. Uh, I had tutored a lot in high school and college and had run one of Harvard's SAT tutoring programs and knew that New York City families often want to start their kids early on uh, <laughs> college prep and SAT tutoring. So I got a few of my friends who'd grown up in New York City to send out a short blurb on me and my background to their uh, high school alumni lists. 
and ended up getting a few clients pretty quickly from that, working not just in SAT tutoring, but general homework help, et cetera, and was able to support myself really easily and kind of conveniently on my own schedule through that while I considered what I wanted to do next. I ended up just really relaxing in the city, exploring it for a few months, having a really amazing time uh, before eventually stumbling onto an idea that I wanted to pursue. So what was the moment that you had the idea for Parcel? As soon as I moved to New York into this walk-up building, it was in Greenwich Village on Bleecker Street. I didn't have a doorman and found it near impossible to get my packages delivered. I was ordering all sorts of apartment decorations and home goods to try to set up my home and was missing packages every single day. If you haven't lived without a doorman, you might not be familiar with how this works, but UPS and FedEx and traditional carriers only deliver during the day. And since no one's home, they're not able to get into the buildings often. And they're actually not allowed to leave packages on the street due to the risk of theft in New York City specifically. So instead, they leave a little slip telling you that you missed the delivery and that they'll either attempt it again or you have to track it down at some distant post office, shipment center, whatever. So I ended up spending pretty much every weekend waiting in line for hours at miscellaneous post offices only to find out my packages had been returned to the sender lost altogether, whatever. And it always ended up being just such a nightmare. I couldn't believe there wasn't a solution. I've had it happen. It's the worst. It is, yeah. Especially in a city like New York, where I really do think there are lots of innovations and solutions to these types of urban problems. So I started meeting with friends who didn't have doormen just to see if there was something I was missing, if there was some solution out there that I hadn't yet discovered. And they ended up introducing me to their friends and their friends. And I ended up having 73 interviews with New Yorkers who didn't have doormen. And I asked them all the same questions. You know, how often do you order online? Where do you have things shipped? Have you ever missed a package? Have you had a package uh, stolen from your apartment, et cetera? Uh, And just trying to gauge, you know, to what extent was this a real pain point? And what solutions were people already exploring? And this is like, what, 2012-ish? 2013. 2013, which is also when Amazon was getting more and more popular with Prime, et cetera. So it was probably also just a growing, I would imagine, a growing pain for people you were talking to. Absolutely. People were starting to shop online more and more, but they were also realizing that the convenience of online shopping is rendered irrelevant if you can't get your delivery. Ultimately, it is that final touch point and... No matter how much online retailers are investing in the online shopping process, making you know the actual digital experience as easy and customizable and fun and beautiful as possible, if the customer doesn't get that delivery, ultimately none of that matters and all of that investment was for naught. So I saw that there was this huge opportunity, definitely on the consumer side, but also on the online retailer side, and started asking people all sorts of questions, you know, largely what if I launched a service like this? How much would you pay mm. per delivery or per week or per month? And something that I always love asking is, let's say this service were free, would you have any qualms about using it whatsoever? I think that's a really important question to gauge. Is there a concern with a product idea beyond just the price point? I think it's easy to fixate on. Is it too expensive? Is it not expensive enough, et cetera? Sometimes there could be a deeper flaw than that. Uh, and ultimately, you know, because the service was going to be handling and entrusted with people's online deliveries, it was very important for there to be a level of trust, which I think is really hard for any startup to to get. So I ask people, you know, what has inspired you in the past to trust a service that you hadn't used? That was helpful. And I started to suss out, you know, is there an opportunity here and how could I get people to start start using it? Uh, And the initial premise of Parcel was very simple. If you didn't have a doorman, you would sign up for Parcel and get issued a new shipping address. It was to our headquarters rather than to your apartment. 
And every time you were ordering a package online, instead of entering your own address, you'd enter your parcel shipping address. And as soon as that package arrived to our facility, we would shoot you a text message to let you know it arrived, and you would choose a one-hour delivery window for that evening so that we could deliver the package when you were actually home. Before I even really knew you and we became friends, I remember seeing parcel stickers on doors. You guys had really clever marketing campaigns. Um, I would imagine something had to fund all of this. So at what point did you decide... I'm a, what, 23, 24-year-old. I'm going to go and just raise some venture capital. Oh, sorry, 22-year-old. I'm going to go and just raise some venture capital. Like, right. where did you get the chutzpah to do that? And then also or the, the courage to do that? And then how did you even go about starting that? It largely came from how much early traction I saw. So initially, I'm someone who likes to you know, test something out with as little investment as possible before you know, putting too many resources or even too much time towards something. So as a result, you know, initially it was just me with our beta testers who were by and large the people that I had interviewed as part of those need finding conversations. I knew those were people who had some level of trust because they had met me and of course had the problem that we were you know, trying yeah. to solve there. So initially it was me sending all the text messages from a Google Voice account. The shipping address that we issued to everyone was actually a rented mailing address from a co-working space. I learned that if you create a virtual membership at this co-working space for, I believe it was 15 or $25 a month at the time, you get a mailing address that you can send things to. So I felt like, great, you know, a mailing address can be used for that all sorts of things. Smart. So then, There was no capa- like limit on how much you could send No, because they had never wow. experienced a, a virtual, t- a virtual <laughs> tenant like me. I would guess that by now they've uh, yeah. you know, revised their terms that and conditions. That is hysterical. I didn't know that. It was, yeah. It was hysterical for me, at least. I don't think that the Not mail receiving them. team yeah. was as receptive to it. Uh, but yeah, so every single shipping address was to this co-working address with then a four-digit code that uniquely identified which customer of ours uh, that package was ultimately going to go to. Wow. And each day I would go from my apartment to this uh, co-working space with a hand truck, load all the packages up, bring them to my apartment, uh, reconcile the labels against the customers, send a text message through a Google Voice account to every customer, uh, and everything was copied and pasted so it looked as automated as possible. Wanted to really make this, you know, fake it till you make it. Wanted to make this seem much more legitimate than it actually was. And by the way, I just need to say, because so many people say, oh, well, I need to find a technical co-founder, a, a, someone who st- knows computer science. You weren't coding in any of this. You really hacked this together through other technology. I think that's pretty awesome because I think a lot of people have excuses at the beginning and say, no, I need to find someone who can code. And you don't always need someone who knows how to code necessarily. Absolutely. It was really fun to find a way to do all these things without any proprietary technology development, things like that, you know, between a ton of Google Sheets and a lot of Google Voice. and <laughs> This is not sponsored by Google. No. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> it was really amazing, though. No, yeah, and it felt much more professional than it was. And I would tie a twine bow around every package, and we would have, I would have rotating uh, seasonal messages and things like that that I'd put on these little parcel tags. So it felt like you were kind of getting a gift or a present from Parcel. And that's why our domain is from parcel.com. It has nothing to do with the fact that we couldn't afford Parcel.com, of course. Of course not. Of course not. Uh, and yeah, it was a, it was fun but crazy. And every day, yeah, I'd bring all the packages to my apartment, do all the scheduling over text messages. So venture message. capital. Venture capital, right. Whatever. So I was still relying on the subway, eventually graduated to a zip car, got a Manhattan mini storage unit to store the packages, but ultimately really couldn't support the demand on my own and knew that if I wanted to take this up a notch, we would have to more 
fully invest in real infrastructure, you know, a warehouse, a fleet of vehicles. And, you know, while we still had such limited technology, we started to have more and more needs for more robust yeah. infrastructure and technology. So knew I wanted to build an operations team, a technology team, and get some facilities to our own. So started meeting with venture capitalists just to hear them out, you know, pitch the idea, talk about how much traction we'd seen. How did you get your first venture capital meeting? Was it just through friends and or through that internship? Yeah, it was definitely just through my network at the time. From cool. meeting with so many investors and founders my senior year at college, I developed a lot of those relationships. That's awesome. And it made it a lot easier, you know, I think sending a cold email saying, hey, we're looking for money. Are you open to meeting? You've kind of already given up a lot of power, a lot of leverage at that yeah. point. So it was nice to have some of these people already in my Rolodex, so to speak, so that Smart. I could more casually uh, enter some of those conversations. Uh, and yes, raising as a sole founder is definitely challenging, both practically and you know emotionally or psychologically uh, from a practical standpoint. But I'd hired a handful of drivers to do some deliveries so that I wasn't you know behind the wheel every single night. But given how quickly things were growing and how much limited time I had for hiring and training, I still was doing routes most nights. And by the way, it's funny. You hate driving or you don't love driving. I hate it. You That's hate correct. it. And yeah. I'm a horrible driver. Whenever we go on road trips together, you never drive. I refuse to drive. It's yeah. a, I mean, and now it also is a you know traumatizing, triggering experience <laughs> for me. But even beyond, even before Parcel, I never enjoyed it. It's yeah. very scary. And driving in New York City in particular between the pedestrians and the cabs and the bikers, it's just a whole different beast. Uh, very, very stressful. <laughs> and I think I kind of desensitized myself to it after so many consecutive nights of driving across the city. But also when you're on a tight schedule, trying to deal with customers yeah. nonstop, it was still responding to every customer a service lot. email from your phone in between deliveries. It, it became a lot. Uh, but yeah, I'd spend my days fundraising and you know, my nights trying to respond to emails from investors while also doing routes. And it just became you know, two full-time jobs at once and, you know, let alone try and actually grow the business into a sustainable or more scalable place. So it was definitely challenging, but luckily we ended up raising the million dollars we set out to raise from a mixture of institutional investors, you know, venture capital firms, as well as angel investors around the New York City area. And with that funding, we ended up hiring our initial team, getting our first warehouse, getting our initial fleet of vehicles, and really doing kickstarting it from there. Wow. Okay. So let's fast forward a little bit. What did you learn? What were some of the big learnings that you had while you were the CEO of Parcel and after founding it? And what is advice you give to students who are thinking about, do I graduate and go straight to entrepreneurship or do I graduate and go work at a big company, you know, Goldman or Google or a startup in my backyard or a small business and then go and start my own company. Right. To the first questions, I think some of the biggest learnings I had were, you know, one, how important it is to celebrate the little wins. I'm an extreme perfectionist and I'm extremely critical, so I can always focus on things that need improvement or things that I wish I had more time to commit to or things that, you know, hadn't gone as well as I wanted them to, etc. And with that mindset, you'll never really feel entitled to celebrate anything. You might have had you know, a deal closed that day that's exciting, but you had three more deals fall through. And I was one to always fix it on those latter deals. And I think that's a common theme among every entrepreneur I know. I think so. And it requires a certain level of you know, persistence or fixation on improving things in order to get through all totally. of that. But at a certain point, it also can become really 
exhausting and you know almost resentment inducing if you're not letting yourself enjoy the parts that really are good there will never be a day when everything is going your way and it took me a little while to realize that I should feel great about the things that were going well every day and that you know celebrating those wasn't something to be guilty about uh, as long as I'm still you know keeping my eye on the prize yeah. and looking forward at the same time so that was a big learning for me uh, another one was how I interacted with or, or maybe didn't other players in the space. Early on, I felt like connecting with some of our larger competitors or companies that, you know, could end up becoming competitors of Parcel uh, wasn't a wise move. I thought that I, you know, what we were working on was so special and secretive and novel that sharing that idea with big players was silly. And the last thing I needed was more competitive pressure. Uh, I've since decided, and I actually think you've had a really smart approach to this specifically, uh, I don't think that was the right way for me to be thinking about this. Those huge competitive players can be allies. They can be potential partners down the line. They're people you can learn from early on, and they're much less inclined to have an adversarial relationship with you if you demonstrate how eager you are to learn from them, how excited you are to speak to them in the first place, etc. So I think I missed a lot of opportunities to build meaningful relationships with companies that later could or would become, you know, our partners, our uh, our allies, et cetera. You know, of, of course, you know, Walmart, our eventual parent company, is a company that, you know, I would have loved to start talking to way early on, but felt that we were, you know, too small and too insignificant for us to be having some of those meteor conversations. Uh, and I think, you know, whatever I, I do next, I'm definitely going to be much more thoughtful about identifying the key players in the ecosystem and making sure that you know, kind of keep your friends closer, keep That's your competitors... Or keep your friends close, keep your competitors even closer. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, that was a big learning for me. How about for students who approach you and, and are asking you for advice on whether they should go straight to entrepreneurship or work at a big company and then go to entrepreneurship? I think a lot of it comes down to how comfortable they are in an unstructured environment and whether or not they have data, You know, whether they've had experiences that lend insight into that. I was lucky enough to have started my own company of sorts, the coffee shop in college, and knew that I found that thrilling, knew that I learned so much from doing that in a way that I didn't from other activities I pursued, uh, and ultimately found that that was something that I was good at and really enjoyed doing. I think if I hadn't had that experience, it probably would have been a more challenging decision. So I would urge students to, you know, look back on what they've done so far and seen which things they learned the most from, which things you know, bettered them the most, which things they enjoyed the most, et cetera. And if those have you know, a lack of structure or a level of independence or things that you know, are comparable to that of a startup environment, that's probably a good sign. Uh, I think a lot of people feel that they need a certain set of skills or experiences or contacts before starting their own company. Maybe I'm just self-absorbed or overly confident, but I, I never felt that way. For me, it felt like if I'm determined and I have an idea that I'm excited about and I can f- see people that I would want to work with on this and I see that there's a market size and you know eventual opportunities for you know some sort of liquidity event or at least a really lucrative, profitable future, that was enough for me. And I liked the idea of kind of jumping right in and going from there. So I think a lot of it is about that risk tolerance and is about what types of experiences, you know, will cause you anxiety versus uh, fulfillment, et cetera. One significant moment in your life that we haven't covered too much of was the fact that you you had created this entire child, this thing that was your life. I mean, you were talking about it 
all day, every day, as, by the way, I do about way up. So I'm not <laughs> saying that in a judgmental way. Sure. But it was a big, big portion of your life. And you sold it. And you sold it to an awesome company, Walmart. And you sold it. So give me the 60-second or less uh, version of how you decided to sell Parcel. Um, and then we're going to get into a lightning round. Yeah. So we had been speaking to Walmart for a little while about different <laughs> partnership opportunities, You know, really admiring what they were doing in the e-commerce space and how forward-thinking they were when it came to the customer experience specifically. Parcel at this point was actually working directly with online retailers, handling all of their deliveries across New York City uh, on same-day schedules and in scheduled evening windows like we initially offered directly to consumers. And Walmart had taken a lot of interest in those types of services. And as conversations progressed, we got to see a lot of what they were thinking about in the future and what types of e-commerce initiatives were at play. And, you know, Walmart's the biggest company in the world. They're the biggest retailer in the world. And just the sheer volume and scale of such an incredible industry giant was really stunning for us. And the idea of being able to integrate something that we'd built, which had so much potential for scale, uh, and you know, plug that right into this massive company that could make such good use of the technology we'd built, the team that we developed, the you know, logistics that we'd built, et cetera, uh, was just such an exciting opportunity. It really felt like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And, you know, as those conversations developed and we eventually got you know, a bid from them for a full acquisition, it was just so hard to turn down. And, yeah, just three years to the day after Parcel launched, we were acquired by Walmart, became a subsidiary of theirs. Uh, and the team, you know, has grown a ton since then. We have... I think about 250 employees now. That's insane. I'm actually no longer That's uh, at Walmart or at Parcel, but our COO Jackson runs the company now. And, you know, you'll see our trucks all over the city, hopefully I delivering do. packages across New York City and New Jersey for, you know, Walmart.com and Jet.com, really helping, you know, to optimize that customer experience as much as possible for as many customers as we can. That's amazing. Wow, that's incredible. And 25 years old, when you sold a company to one of the largest companies in the entire world is pretty... Okay, the largest company in the world is pretty incredible. And uh, and you. a lot of kudos to you. In one sentence or less, do you know what's next? For now, I'm just traveling a lot, sleeping a lot, catching up with friends. Uh, I've had Letting a few, me invest in your next business. Yeah, You've thinking already about promised. it, you know, entertaining different offers. Yeah. Uh, no, for now, I'm $1 just... $1 trillion. Will you take it? <laughs> is that the valuation or the investment? The investment. Okay, I'll have to think about it. Okay. Uh, no, it's been a great... I've had an amazing time since uh, the acquisition. I was on a game show last year, which was one of the most fun things I've ever done. I've oh traveled the world. Oh my gosh, yeah, wait. Come on, 20 seconds or less, you went on a $100,000 pyramid. That's right. With Leslie Jones. That's right, and Tay Diggs. And you won everything. I didn't win everything, but I won a, a good amount. You won more than $100,000. I did. Pre-tax. <laughs> Pre-tax, that's, that's right. That's phenomenal. It is Why phenomenal. did you even do that? Because uh, it wasn't like you needed the money necessarily after this acquisition. <laughs> I've always loved game shows and the $100,000 pyramid in particular. It's always been my favorite show. You do I, love that show. I love word games, I love word association, I love fast-paced experiences, and I love the entertainment world. So I'd always dreamed of being on a game show and ended up deciding to apply to that one and went through a very rigorous casting process and ultimately was selected to be uh, a contestant last year. And yeah, filmed at ABC Studios, had a, a whole day with you know hair and makeup and warm-up games and all of that. Uh, some starstruckness with you know, Michael Strahan and Leslie Jones and Tay Diggs. 
And yeah, the actual onstage portion is a total blur. Rewatching the everyone episode. has to watch it who's listening to this because you will see Jesse dab in the most incredible oh way ever. It is humiliating. It I is. hope that this is better edited than that. No, the, the entire experience was amazing. The ABC team is incredible, and it sparked an interest in uh, you know reality show and game show production. So some of the things that I am thinking about next. Uh, involved. HQ, that kind of yeah. thing? No, I definitely am thinking a lot about the game show world and yeah. opportunities there, especially with, you know, advents in technology. Uh, also thinking about you know, house flipping, real estate development, kind of all across the board. But Same yeah. thing. Same house thing. flipping, no, you know. game shows. Uh, but yeah, no, it was the game show. Pyramid was an incredible experience, one of the, the most fun dates in my entire life, hands down. Okay, so you mentioned you like fast-paced games. Oh, God. So we're going to move into our final segment of the show. It's the lightning round. So I'm going to ask questions, and you answer them as quickly as you can. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. Morning classes or night? Night. Written notes or laptop? Laptop. Coffee or Red Bull? Coffee. Of course. Please. Go to late night food? Ooh. Anything at Capella, the 24-7 Cuban diner on 14th and 7th. Ooh. Study guide made a week in advance or last minute cramming? Week in advance. Senior superlative? Ooh. I was looking at this recently, and one of them that I got was most likely to be on a game show, so we'll leave it at that. Oh, snap. I think I also got most likely to go to jail, but we'll have to wait a little while and see. What is a fun fact about you we couldn't learn from your bio and that I couldn't have found on Google? I can recite 500 digits of pi. All right. I'm going to time you for – no, no, no. No, that's it. It's a perfect segue. So I'm going to time you for 20 seconds, and I want you to go through pi. Ready? Sure. As much as you can, obviously, not the whole thing. Will you tell me to stop? Yes. Go. 3.14.1.5.9.2.6.4.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.3.